Welcome to the Unpacked Project. We're your hosts. I'm Noelle. And I'm Miranda. We're here to explore all things social justice. It's through casual conversations, interviews, and storytelling that we hope to inspire others to take action towards a more compassionate and equitable world. Because honestly, it kind of sucks here sometimes. (laughs) For real. We can do better, people. All right. Let's start unpacking. Hi, Miranda. Hey, <laughs> How are you on this? What day Tuesday. is it? Tuesday? Yeah. I don't even know because I was off. I know. Day. We were just saying we haven't recorded at night in so long. So it's kind of interesting. It feels yeah. like we're back to the beginning when we used to record weeknights, you know? So now we knock out everything like in a week, a weekend, you know? So, so yeah. What about you? How are you? Um, I'm good. I'm tired, yeah, you know, um, getting uh, back in the swing of things here. So. I'm good. It feels good. I agree with you. It feels like we're like back in the beginning, how we used to do things. And um, it's just, I was, I'm actually really looking forward to this interview um, and, you know, the topic and everything that we're talking about. So in a way I was like excited driving home, like we have an interview tonight. You know, well, so here well, we are. Well, let me bring in Dr. Miles Durkee. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Michi- Michigan. He's received a bachelor's degree in psychology from Pomona College and a PhD in educational psychology, applied developmental science from the University of Virginia. He's also completed postdoctoral fellowships at the University of Chicago and the University of Michigan. So Dr. Durkee is a psychologist who examines the dynamics of cultural invalidations, racial, dis- racial discrimination, and racial code switching, which we're super interested in. Um, and he determines how these experiences influence important psycho- psychosocial outcomes, such as mental health, identity development, and academic achievement. So broadly, his research examines how people of color navigate racial contexts, how they modify their racial behavior to fit into certain contexts, and internalize messages about their cultural authenticity from individuals inside and both outside their racial groups. So Miles, thank you so much for being here. Just like Noah was saying, we're super excited to have you on. When we did our intake with you, just you shared such great information. We're always like, we should have just recorded our intake, you know? Um, But can you share a little bit more about how you got into this work? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you first for the invitation. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm always excited to talk about, you know, my research, kind of like a big old nerd. So it's what we, you know, research all day, every day. So just excited to share that knowledge, you know, that we've garnered uh, with as many people as possible. Um, So starting off, uh, my work originally looked at racial discrimination amongst people of color, uh, primarily college students, to understand their day-to-day experiences. Um, And as we talked with more and more African-American college students, we realized that in addition to just standard, you know, your traditional racism and discrimination, they also experience a lot of discrimination from members who look just like them. So members of their own racial community. And basically they were being sized up in terms of not being authentic enough or the right type of black person. So we saw that for a lot of participants, this is causing them a lot of distress, you know, and they weren't sure how to really cope with these emotions, these feelings. Uh, And they weren't sure whether or not they could even call it discrimination because it's coming from other racially oppressed uh, group, racial group members um, and members of their same racial group. Um, So in our interviews with them, we found out a lot of interesting information. And one pattern that came up over and over again is uh, African-American and black college students being accused of acting white. So basically, these are messages uh, directly targeted at them which suggest that they're not racially authentic enough or they're demonstrating behavior that's not authentic for the racial and ethnic group. 
But what's problematic about these accusations is even demonstrating very normal, typical behaviors of a college student, like being a nerd or studying a lot or going to the library or, you know, getting good grades or the most common ones speaking properly. <laughs> they will receive these types of accusations of other people not seeing them as being authentically black. Um, and they weren't really sure how to cope with this, how to deal with this, and also too how it impacted their racial and ethnic identity. So we've been doing this work for years now. We've expanded it to Latinx students as well in college. And we find that their experience is quite similar in terms of navigating the racial politics of transitioning into college and who do I affiliate with? Do I affiliate with the same Latinx you know, community on campus? Or do I integrate with more of the general population if they're at a predominantly white institution? So kind of navigating these racial dynamics can be a very um, a challenging task for a lot of uh, young adults as they make that transition to college. So, um, Miles, before we kind of get into some like deeper level questioning about all of this, because all your research is super interesting, um, we just wanted to start off for our listeners as just defining and having you explain what racial code switching is. Um, it's a seemingly like, like a behavioral strategy, according to your research. So, like, what is it and why do people tend to utilize it? Yeah, exactly. So I'll start off with kind of the, I guess, classic, you know, basic definition of just code switching. So code switching is the process of switching between one or more languages or even a dialect within the same language in a single conversation. So when we talk about dialects, that can be a person who's speaking English, but they can speak English two different ways in the same conversation. So one version can be to appeal to, let's say, a predominantly white audience. So speaking more mainstream, standard American English is often referred to. Also commonly referred to as proper, speaking properly, you know, proper English. Another version can be speaking more of a vernacular that fits more with their cultural group. So kind of putting a flair on that English that sounds a little more, you know, culturally authentic. So using just a little bit more slang, maybe slur the words a little bit, uh, but in a way that just uh, feels more authentic for their cultural group. So uh, the field of linguistics has really pioneered the study of, of code switching in terms of how people speak, speak the dialect they speak, um, and also the structure that they use to switch between these two different dialects seamlessly. Uh, but psychologists have realized that in addition to just the way you speak, people can also code switch across a whole gamut of different behaviors. That's not just your style of speech. I mean, you can code switch if you're trying to appeal to a different racial group with racial code switching. I mean, you can code switch in your behavioral mannerisms, even how you walk, um, how you, the clothing you wear, the brands you wear, even a handshake. When you greet someone, we have culturally distinct handshakes that are different across different groups. And these all send signals to the person that you're interacting with of kind of your cultural background. So if you want to appeal to a certain group, you can code switch across all these sets of behaviors uh, to basically accommodate the comfort of that group to be seen more as an in-group member and to be included in certain spaces. It's so interesting. Like I'm just like, you know, I'm like mind blown, like, oh, my life, you know, as you talk about these things. Right. Um, and you you touched on, um, you know, kind of this acting white. Right. And, and code switching within your own community. And that's something that really hits home for me because that's something I've experienced a lot. Right. And as a as a child, it was always like, well, why? You know, I understood at a young age that for me specifically, the black diaspora is diverse, you know what I mean? And we look differently across all situations, just like any other group as well. Um, and I think the other dynamic is I'm also Latin and don't speak Spanish, right? And so consistently <laughs> receiving these messages of not belonging to groups that I'm like, but I am this, you know? And so in my mind, I'm still a part of this group just in a different way. And I think that we all have differences. So, you know, as you touched on the term acting white, 
Um, we've all heard that in our lifetimes, you know, in the research, um, it's literally been named acting white accusation, and it's not only invalidating, but it can also be racist depending on who it's coming from. Um, so your research has examined the dynamics involved with the acting white accusation, not only from the out-group perpetrators, but also in relation to ethnic racial in-group members, like you mentioned. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, uh, dive a little bit deeper? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that great question. And thanks also for the framing. I mean, completely, this accusation of acting white, I mean, it's rooted in white supremacy and racism. So when we look at the context and the circumstances in which that accusation occurs, um, typically it occurs when a person of color is not fitting the kind of prototypical or the profile um, of a member of the racial ethnic group. But when we think about that stereotypical profile of racial and ethnic groups, the majority of stereotypes applied to BIPOC and people of color are mostly negative stereotypes, more so than they are positive stereotypes. So there's no way in hell that any person of color is going to fit all of these negative stereotypes about their group. It's just not possible. So even when they demonstrate very typical normative behaviors that most people their age or in that context demonstrate, if it doesn't fit with that more negative profile, then that can leave them vulnerable to being accused of acting white. And when that message comes from an in-group member, essentially to basically insult another in-group member, essentially it's kind of reaffirming that these very normal traits of being punctual, you know, being polite to someone, you know, speaking proper, that these are only reserved for white people and not reserved for anyone else, which kind of pigeonholes uh, populations of color to almost, uh, it can be peer pressure to assimilate towards those negative stereotypes. Uh, when you look at peer dynamics, I mean, it can create this kind of negative feedback loop. Um, and we find that with the data with, um, Black males, particularly, when it comes to their identity development, these accusations kind of suppress dimensions of their identity development. And based on the lower identity development with their own group, that leads to more accusations in the future. In the future. So these two kind of just reaffirm one another. Can I just ask, um, what were some of the outcomes that you started to see amongst college students that were experiencing this? Like yeah, so we find pretty consistently across the board for both Black and Latinx individuals, uh, the more frequently you're accused of acting white, it's pretty consistently associated with higher depressive symptoms, mm -hmm. um, also higher anxiety symptoms, and just higher perceived stress overall. Because uh, many individuals, don't get me wrong, they do not want to be accused by, but they perceive this as an insult. So they perceive someone as insulting them with a racially charged insult. Uh, and they respond the same way. And similar to we see with instances of racial discrimination along those lines. We've also looked at it in relation to identity development too. So given that this message itself is a form of racial socialization, so basically it sends a message of what's the appropriate way to behave within your group. So when people receive these messages, they have to process that racial information and figure out, okay, should I change myself to now fit the expectations of other people or should I push back and be my authentic self and try to prove those stereotypes wrong? They have to try to make sense of this information of how, what's the, right racial identity for them. So as they're doing this, uh, these accusations are having an impact on how they're developing their own sense of racial identity. And it's not a one size fits all. I mean, we do see different patterns across uh, individuals, uh, but we also see some patterns too across different uh, demographic groups who receive these messages. Yeah, I mean, I think in the previous episodes, um, you know, we've talked a lot on racial and ethnic identity development for white people and people of color. I think one of the things that kind of keeps coming up is that fact that we live in a white world that really like normalizes and reinforces white standards. Um, and then that obviously impacts the ability of people of color to be able to live authentically, right? Like they're always having to kind of 
play this game of figuring out kind of where they fit, I guess. Um, and so, you know, I know you started talking a little bit about it in terms of the implications of that, um, but I'm interested in like long-term implications or are there any like protective factors that, that you find um, for people that have to engage in this racial code switching? Um, you know, just kind of what, what are the long-term consequences of that? And then is there anything that, that can kind of help with it? Yeah, great question. So I'll start off by saying that code switching by itself is not harmful. You know, if you simply can adjust your behavior, your mannerisms to appeal to different audiences, that by itself is not harmful. If anything, it's a skill set because now you're becoming more adaptable to different spaces, to different people. And if you can do that culturally, it just makes you more likable <laughs> in general. So in that sense, then code switching in and of itself is a skill set that some people naturally have a predisposition where as soon as they walk into a room, um, they can naturally kind of read the room and adjust their behavior to start to fit in that context. So on the, on the psychology realm and personality psychology, there's actually a trait for that. We call it self-monitoring. And self-monitoring is a personalized psychology trait that's been studied for decades. And essentially everyone falls somewhere on a continuum on this trait of how closely they self-monitor themselves in every space they're in to seeing if they're fitting in and hitting the right norms and the cues in that space. Uh, now, once we add on, uh, let's say, systems of oppression and hierarchy and racism, that's where racial code switching can start to become detrimental because we see that that expectation and that pressure to code switch, it's not shared equally across all groups. And in fact, it's the groups who have the least amount of power, who are the most marginalized. They're typically the groups that face the highest level of social pressure to code switch just to have a seat at the table, just to even be heard or to even be recognized or respected. Because if they're not presenting themselves in a way that, let's say, I'll just be honest, is palatable to white middle-class men who typically, you know, are in positions of power, you know, who are, have sit on the boards of most companies who kind of have those gatekeeping roles. So if you're not presenting yourself that's palatable to those gatekeepers, then it makes it more likely that you'll be ostracized. So that's kind of that peer pressure set of the dynamic for why people of color and people from other marginalized identities, because you don't only code switch based off your race, you can code switch across any marginalized identity uh, to try to, I guess, I guess, minimize the amount of discrimination you're going to receive based on that identity. Um, so in, when individuals have to do this just to be respected in the first place, that's where it becomes just fatiguing. Because once you decide to code switch and you do that, let's say you do that in a professional workplace, then once you presented that character, you have to now stay in character for the rest of the time you're in that space. Because the moment you slip up and now come out of character, then it's gonna make other people suspicious. If they see that you can speak a different way, that you carry yourself a different way, and it's not the way that they've become accustomed to, now they're gonna to start to get a little doubtful of what's the true you. Um, and that's where code switching itself, even if you're good at it, if you slip up in that case and other people are aware that you're code switching, then you're not going to face those, you're not going to experience those benefits of code switching because now they're going to be a more doubtful and question, start to question of what's the, who's, which side is the true you. Um, and when those questions come up, that's when it usually don't lead to kind of positive outcomes. So any way you look at it, it's a challenge. It's like we're out here trying to code switch and keep our stories straight, you know, um, that's a, and I, and I think back to college, you know, some of my friends, especially being from, you know, more urban, marginalized areas and coming to college for the first time, you're losing your sense of community if you're moving away from home and you're having to navigate these really challenging situations in addition to everything else you just deal with being a freshman or new to college and being away from home, you know, so I can, I can imagine that being really 
really challenging to deal with. Um, so what recommendations do you have when it comes to reducing um, AWA insults and eliminating this need to racially code switch altogether so people can just show up as their authentic selves as they should be able to? Yeah, great question. Uh, we get that question a lot, and I kind of I wish I had a more positive, happy-go-lucky, you know, utopian answer. Like honesty here, give it to us straight. You know, I feel like whenever we're talking about racism, I mean, racism is hard to change. Oh, yeah. I mean, ultimately, yeah. this boils back down to racism, and it's what makes it most insidious is this is a more an invisible type of racism, where a lot of these dynamics it's cultural racism, where it's not a person oftentimes who's directly you know calling you a racial slur or something. Thing. It's mostly of that person having a preference or expectation that you're going to fit their standards of, let's say, for code switching, what's considered professional, okay? So professionalism shouldn't have a racial overtone on being professional, but in America, it does, you know? We're much more likely to associate white cultural standards with what's professional. Uh, even if an individual is being professional but has an ethnic flair on it, other people are going to see that as less professional. Um, and in the way they're going to judge those behaviors. So that kind of sets a precedence for people from more marginalized identities who have a different cultural aesthetic, that if they want to be respected and seen as a, a peer eye to eye without having those also other aspects of those kind of implicit biases or sometimes even explicit, you know, in your face biases as well, then it sets a kind of precedent for them to code switch, to kind of show to their audience that I can speak, talk, act just like you and I'm just intelligent as you, uh, you know, <laughs> so that I'm seen as a, as a peer and seen as an equal rather than being perceived from a negative lens. Um, but one thing, one strategy that does help is really just intergroup contact, you know, because I think when we have situations that are segregated or just very homogenous, it starts to reaffirm uh, these expectations, you know, and kind of these standards of, you know, uh, of what's uh, kind of that um, cultural climate right there, it kind of reaffirms it, but this is the standard that we're expected to, and we're not really used to change, you know, or difference um, or diversity. But the more diverse space you have, when you have people from different cultural groups, different walks of life, even people who are bilingual, multilingual, now you're introducing some variance. And that variance can be helpful because it helps people to realize that, oh, there is not just one way to be black. The African diaspora is actually quite diverse and not all black people act alike, you know, the same way for not all Latinx individuals act alike or any other group. So really having those spaces that have that diversity there, um, even if it is a space where everyone's from the same racial ethnic background, even just having economic diversity um, can help as well to introduce that difference and to remind people that uh, labels do not mean that a person holding that identity, that label, it's not a monolith where everyone is going to behave exactly the same or be the same. So, um, you know, it's interesting because on this podcast, obviously, you know, we come um, into it with like our experiences and things we hear. Like, I, you know, I talk a lot about how like things I hear white people say and, you know, try to bring up things on the podcast that we can kind of challenge some of that and explore some of that. Um, and when it comes to code switching, I think white people have a hard time understanding it to a certain extent, because like you said, we all kind of engage in these like impression management strategies sometimes, right? Or like you said, self-monitoring, like we all for the most part, it, I mean, maybe not we all, like if that's part of your trade, if you have that as a skill set, um, you know, that, that you do that, you talk one way with your friends versus how you might speak to your boss just kind of naturally. But... I guess my question when it comes to this for, for white people 
is what is the distinct difference when we think of the stress and we think of the depression and long-term outcomes and the impacts of racial code switching, what is that like distinct difference? Is it the, the need that we're minimizing discrimination? Like, you know, for, for people that are doing it from, from a racial perspective and have racism to deal with on top of everything else, like what are those distinct differences um, between when a white person is code switching in some way, whether it be like even just in their dress or not, you know, and however they decide to do that um, versus when people of color are code switching? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, and it relates to, I would say, the most common pushback that we get from other academics related to this work of, I would say, the true of whether or not code switching has a psychological toll or not. And the surprising part is typically the vast majority of that pushback comes from the most privileged the individuals who have the most privileged identities in that sense, where in most spaces they move between, there's less of a standard for them to code switch. So if you've kind of, you know, walked about the world in situations where, you know, if you wanted to code switch, you could, but there's very few situations where you necessarily was forced to code switch to be just respected or included in the same time, then it can become harder and more difficult to really understand how taxing, you know, uh, racial code switching could be if you have to do it all day every day. Um, so with that, I always I will always like to point out that uh, yes, everyone does code switch to a certain extent. It's just part of human nature. But with that, code switching is a spectrum. Some people can do it much more effectively than other people, but everyone falls somewhere on that spectrum. Um, and for most people, everyone code switch between when they're at work or on an interview. Of course, you're going to present your most professional self there compared to if, you know, you're with your friends or your family, then you're going to present a different self where you're more casual. Everyone does that. So that's kind of the most basic kind of standard way of code switching. But then once we look at other systems of power and oppression and we stack on other marginalized identities, now it changes the stakes. Because if I'm working in, a, let's say, a a highly you know, demanding workplace that is not very inclusive, if I'm kind of the token individual of the diversity kind of token person there, then that space is not really used to having diversity or not used to having someone who's different from them. So it can make my life somewhat easier if I can just adapt my behavior and change, if it's, if it's easy for me to do that, if I can just change my aesthetic to accommodate the standard that they've already set there, kind of that, you know, cultural climate that's already been predetermined there, that can make it somewhat easier to kind of slide in under the radar to fit in into these, you know, sometimes oftentimes homogenous and less inclusive spaces. Uh, but not everyone's going to do that. Okay, let's get wrong. For some people, it just happens naturally where they don't really have to think about it. They've been doing it for maybe since they were a small child. If they went to, let's say, probably white elementary schools, high schools, colleges. So if they've been doing it for years, then it can be just easier to kind of stay in that same type of dynamic. But for other folks who maybe refuse to do it, you know, or just have very little experience doing it, now if you're going to expect them to present themselves in a way that just accommodates the culture that's already in that group, then that's an unfair expectation there, especially if they're already able to do their job at a highly effective uh, level and to be able to accomplish their job duties, then regardless of the way how they pronounce their vowels and maybe <laughs> in their sentences, that shouldn't really influence um, their uh, workplace performance evaluations. But unfortunately, I mean, these dynamics, they play a heavy role in hiring decisions. They play a heavy role in promotion decisions, you know? And if, I mean, if, even if we pull from kind of the psychological side of it, when people are evaluating other people, if you're more similar to myself, I'm naturally gonna evaluate you more positively. So we call it a halo effect. Or if I can see myself in you, or we share the same identity, then by default, I'm gonna automatically attribute more positive traits to you. 
But if you're from a group that I'm unfamiliar with and I see you more as the other or a different group, then you're going to have to prove to me that you belong here. <laughs> because the first thing when we interact, the first thing people are going to see is difference, you know? Yeah, yeah we've talked about... So that's kind of why I kind of changed. Yeah, we've talked about like me and similarity bias. So that's, you know, exactly what it is for folks that have followed along with us, you know. It makes me think, too, of like conversations we've had about um, diversifying places, right? In general, like who has the power in organizations? Who are the people that tend to be in supervisor roles um, or positions of power? And if we don't have diversity within our organizations, then the people that normalize behavior and normalize expectations are typically white people, white males, right? And then that all trickles down, um, you know, and it just, I think of hair discrimination. I think of all these, you know, these things that happen in schools, workplaces, businesses. Um, and if there's not like representation of diverse groups um, and communities within organizations, businesses, schools, um, then things tend to be one-sided. And I always feel like, because whiteness is so normalized and how like how things should be is like the white way people don't even realize well or they realize they're benefiting from it like they they don't even get it like what it's like to be somewhere where you feel like you need to engage in these these strategies to fit in or to be included um or to be truly seen like in what your capabilities are um, and so, you know, it's just such an interesting topic and, and everything you've shared today. Yeah. If I can just jump in, I love that point you just made because that same exact dynamic, that's how I, the system con it continues to per perpetuate itself, you know, because in that same situation where it's really reaffirming that sense of kind of white supremacy and cultural racism, but it's not doing it in a way that's in your face is very, it's, it's not explicit at all, but it's more so of that preference where in America, we set a precedence where there's a. Uh, underlying preference towards what we consider the norm and those norms are based around kind of you know white and european standards so when someone's not fitting those norms it's just so easy to exclude them and not even realize that it's systemic and it fits within kind of a racist dynamic because one can simply say oh well they're just not a good fit for our company they don't fit in with our company culture or they're just not the right type of professionalism that we would expect Regardless of if that's true or not, <laughs> you know, it just gives people a, a, a pass to kind of reaffirm. And sometimes, I mean, I'll be honest, this may be coming not out of a place of malicious intent, but it just comes out of a system of familiarity where they're so familiar to just one kind of cultural aesthetic and one standard and not really um, as exposed. Well, yeah. And when we talk about racism, I mean, that's that's the whole premise is you may have, you know, very nice white people, but they're still benefiting from this you know, the privilege of being white in this world, regardless if they're racist or not, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a similar thing. And so we always talk about diversifying your feed and engaging with people that are different than you and learning to celebrate differences. And, you know, when we talk about what are some tactics to utilize um, to eliminate, you know, the need to code switch, um, you had kind of talked about it's all it's all racism, you know, and it's sort of uh, when you ask that question, it's it's not an easy one to answer because there's so many things to do. But I think within ourselves, we can start to look at um, our own privileges and, you know, how are we creating space for inclusion and diversity in the spaces that we're in, um, just creating safe spaces as well. So, yeah, we get some really interesting uh, responses, too, when we ask uh, 
older folks, you know, about code switching versus younger generations. We get very different responses. So from older generations, uh, given that a lot of them were forced to code switch, I mean, when we think about the amount of racism that was experienced, you know, a few decades ago, it was much more in your place, in your face and explicit. So for the older generations, they saw code switching as a way of survival where you had to do it just to even get that, you know, call back for the job interview just to get hired. Code switching was expected. So because that generation had to go through these dynamics, they see that as just kind of a rites of passage where, oh, yeah, you know, as a person of color, you need to code switch just to, you know, get ahead in life. But we're seeing younger generations who are now pushing back against that, where there's now a motivation to be unapologetically black. And we're seeing kind of a kind of. I would say a generational confrontation where the two generations are butting head a little bit. Um, ultimately, it falls within the realm of black respectability politics of how should black folks and even other groups as well, just marginalized groups, how should they carry themselves in these spaces? One, should they code switch to basically make white folks who are in the positions, the gatekeepers feel more comfortable or should they bring their authentic self and potentially maybe face the race of discrimination, but at least they can do it being true to themselves and not kind of, I guess, in a way, selling out and trying to be someone different just to be included in a space that's not inclusive naturally. So we're seeing this kind of clash of cultures here, and we're seeing it across the generational lines of what's the, what's the best way, what's the right way to be and to move forward. Well, Miles, thank you so much for being here with us today. Everything you've said has been so valuable. I truly appreciate it. Um, you know, next week we have Isaac Etter uh, hopping on from Identity, and he's going to be continuing the conversation around racial identity development, um, around transracial adoption. So be sure to join us then, and we look forward to hearing from you all soon. Show the Unpack Project some love and be sure to like, subscribe, and review our podcast. You can also check us out on Instagram at the underscore Unpack Project. And if you enjoyed today's episode, visit our website at theunpackedproject.com, where you can make a donation that supports the research, production, and operating costs of this work. Shout out to all of our listeners who unpacked with us today. See you next week. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>